All right, thank you very much. If you would turn to Acts chapter 4, as we continue going through the book of Acts. Acts chapter 4. I think a lot these days about what's going on in our country. And one of the things that I think is a great need for us as Christians in our country is to realize that this is a dark hour in our country and courage is one of the most important things we need in a dark hour. We need the courage to do what is right and we need the courage to speak the truth in love. And that's exactly what we see in Acts chapter 4 is we see an example and an encouragement to be courageous, to do what is right, to speak the truth in love, even when there's opposition, even when uh, the devil is raising his ugly head and opposing the church of Christ and is seeking to bring havoc into um, whether it is a country or a family or whatever, we need courage. And God has put stories in the Bible. Have you ever wondered why God didn't just give us a um, systematic theology textbook with a big list of propositions? He doesn't do that for one reason, because we gain encouragement and inspiration through the example of other people. Even in the book of Hebrews, it talks about imitate the faith of those who've gone before you. And so there's a grace that God gives, obviously through his word, but through the example of other people, men and women who trust God under very difficult circumstances and who are willing to speak the truth even when it will cost them. Maybe their jobs, maybe their lives, whatever it might be. And so God, who's designed us, uh, knows exactly the kind of encouragement we need. And, and we need both propositional truth. This is the truth. We need statements of truth, but we also need examples of what that truth should do in our lives and how it should play out when we find ourselves in very difficult and dark times. Um, a man who walked through this that I've mentioned before is Alexander Solzhenitsyn, who was a, a Russian historian and political prisoner. And he talks about how difficult it is to respond appropriately when you're in a country where there's great oppression, there's great persecution. And he said some things like this. He said, the simple step of a courageous individual is not to take part in the lie. And the lie is the narrative that the government is using to control people. That isn't the truth, but it's a lie meant to control people and keep them in power and increase their power. He says, one word of truth outweighs the world. And so he's talking about the importance of realizing that there is a true reality and there is a lying narrative. And when Satan came to Adam and Eve, he was giving them a lying narrative about God and about what was going on. And that led them into sin. But the truth is meant to set us free from sin and set us free from fear and enable us to live in the way that God calls us to live. And so the truth is crucial. And for refusing to just act like the lie is true or to talk like the lie is true is important, but rather to talk like the truth is true and to act like the truth is true. He said to stand up for truth is nothing 
For truth, you must sit in jail. What does he mean by that? Now, he doesn't mean that standing up for the truth isn't important. What he means is you need to stand up for truth when you know it will cost you, that it will land you in jail, that you're willing to suffer for the truth. It's one thing for me to get up here on a Sunday morning and and proclaim the truth. It's another thing for me to do that if I know that any moment someone could come in and drag me off to jail. There's a difference between those two situations. And he's saying that it's much easier to say we believe the truth and talk about it and live like it to some degree when there's no opposition. There's no cost involved. And for years in our country, there's been very little cost, at least in terms of jail time or or physical persecution. There's always been the risk of losing a relationship and things like that. But we've got, in our day and time, Canadian pastors being put in jail. We've got other situations where, around the world, the cost of doing what is right and speaking the truth is becoming increasingly costly. It's it's growing in various ways. And so we see that pictured, uh, that reality pictured in Acts chapter 4. But before we get there, I just want to remind you of the context of Acts chapter 4. The context of Acts 4 is actually the Bible. And the Bible lays out some important truths. We're talking about the importance of hanging on to the truth and speaking the truth. So I just want to remind you of just some basic uh, Bible gospel truths that are meant to shape our lives and are meant to be spoken regardless of what the opposition is. The first thing is the truth about God. God created us to be holy and happy like he is. That implies there is a God. That implies that he is good it implies that he is holy. It implies that he is happy and that he, incre- he created us in his image that we might be holy and that we might be happy and that those two, th- two things go together. You can't be truly happy like God and not be holy like God. That's why God calls us to holiness because he calls us to happiness in him. The truth is, though, every one of us uh, has sinned against perfect love, God, who is perfect love, perfect light, perfect life. We've sinned against him when there was no good reason to do so. Adam and Eve were in a paradise, perfect paradise, and they still sinned, and we still sin against perfect love. And as a result, we deserve a just punishment. Uh, The suffering and evil in this world, the death in this world, is the result of the fact that we are in a fallen world that deserves to die. That's what sin deserves. The wages of sin is death. And so all the good we see in this world is grace. What we deserve is judgment. And yet God is gracious. God is good. God is kind. And he sent his son who did what we uh, celebrate at Christmas time and what we celebrate at Easter so that Jesus is Lord of all and an able and willing Savior for you and me. That's the good news as Christians that we proclaim. That's why we're Christians that we believe Jesus is Lord over everything that's happening and that he's able and willing to save anyone who will come to him in repentance and faith. Nobody is beyond his ability to save and his willingness to save. Nobody. That's the good news we proclaim. And so God in loving mercy calls every person to repent and believe in the Lord Jesus. How does he do that? He does that through his church. He does that through his word. 
He does that through, through his church proclaiming his word. And we'll see that in Acts chapter 4. And the Spirit leads believers to rest in Jesus, hope in God, and pursue love until the end. Until the end of our lives, until the end when Jesus comes back. And pursuing love very much has to do with not being silent in the face of opposition, but being able to speak the truth in love by God's grace. And so that's the context for what we're going to see in Acts chapter 4. And so let me read uh, this chapter for us because it, um, what it does for us, it gives us a picture of what it's to look like. I'm not sure if this is working. I think it might have. Thank you, Claudia. So what we're going to see in this chapter is look for this chapter talking about the opposition of the world. Look for how it encourages us to embrace a duty to speak. Look for how it calls us to speak because of love, the requirement of love. And finally, look for the request to be bold enough to do that. So let me read for us Acts chapter 4. It says in verse 1, As they were speaking to the people, this is Peter and John, this is right after the healing of the lame man and who got up and was walking, leaping, and praising God. And Peter preaches another sermon. And so chapter 4 follows chapter 3, obviously, and that is a, a continuation of that story. As they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to them, being greatly disturbed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they laid hands on them and put them in jail until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the message believed, and the number of the men came to be about 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes were gathered together in Jerusalem. And Annas the high priest was there, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of high priestly descent. When they had placed them in the center, they began to inquire, By what power or in what name have you done this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are on trial today for a benefit done to a sick man, as to how this man has been made well, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, whom you crucified whom God raised from the dead, by this name, this man stands here before you in good health. He is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, but which became the chief cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Now, as they observed the confidence of Peter and John, and understood that they were uneducated and untrained men, they were amazed and began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. And seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, they had nothing to say in reply. But when they had ordered them to leave the council, they began to confer with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For the fact that a noteworthy miracle has taken place through them is apparent to all who live in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But so that it will not spread any further among the people, let us warn them to speak no longer to any man in this name. And when they had summoned them, they commanded them not to speak or teach at all 
in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said to them, whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge. For we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. When they had threatened them further, they let them go, finding no basis on which to punish them on account of the people, because they were all glorifying God for what had happened. For the man was more than 40 years old on whom this miracle of healing had been performed. When they had been released, they went to their own companions and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard this, they lifted their voices to God with one accord and said, O Lord, it is you who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them who by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples devise futile things? The kings of the earth took their stand, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. And now, Lord, take note of their threats and grant that your bondservants may speak your word with all confidence while you extend your hand to heal and signs and wonders take place through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place where they had gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God with boldness. This is the word of God. So as I said, the first thing that I want us to think about is how this passage talks about the reality of the opposition of the world. I don't know about you, but um, we may not always think this world is that dangerous because we've lived in a country where for the most part we've had great freedom great prosperity, and um, we haven't had to live like other Christians in other countries where I think in other countries it's, it's probably more like what we've experienced with COVID. After COVID, people go into the grocery store and they're wary of all the people around them. I wonder if that person is going to give me something that I don't want. And we have masks on and, and people are much more concerned and, in a sense, um, selective about who they hang out with and very much more concerned about uh, how that person might be a threat. That's been encouraged by our government in various ways to see the people around us as a threat. And there's a biblical basis for understanding that that is the kind of world we really live in, not because of COVID, but because of sin, because we live in a fallen world. And if we are a Christian, the Bible says we are like sheep in the midst of wolves. Do you realize that? We're like sheep in the midst of wolves. So so that that there is always the possibility that um, some kind of opposition to us as Christians could break out. Now, why does it always do that? Why do many times uh, unbelievers uh, show much kindness to even believers and and there's not persecution, that's the grace of God. That's the common grace of God. But there are times when God will remove his common grace and we will see 
the opposition of the world for what it truly is. Um, I was listening over, overhearing, I guess, a, a podcast that Jan was listening to uh, by Allie Beth Stuckey, who was talking to a professor who was actually almost literally run off from his, um, I don't know if it's a college or university, uh, but wherever he taught. And I just recall one thing that he said during the interview. He was talking about the fact, and he, he's not a conservative, or at least wasn't a conservative. He may be more conservative now, I'm not sure. But he, he was a liberal professor, and uh, the school was trying to require all the white people, faculty and students, not to come to school on a particular day. And he felt like that was a racist thing to say that we don't want any white people at school on this day. And so he opposed it. And he said, I, I could see, I could realize that there would be opposition to my stand. I knew that there was this uh, movement coming in a certain way. And I, so I wasn't surprised at the opposition in one sense. But he said, in another sense, it really surprised me. And what surprised him was that it did not matter what his argument was. Did not matter what his reasoning was. Did not matter that he could say, these are my good reasons for believing that this is wrong and not the right thing to do. He said there was no place to talk about and dialogue and to um, stand up for a, a differing opinion. His stand was against the official narrative. He felt it was a lie. He felt that he was speaking the truth. There's no place for truth. No place for truth. To me, that's an illustration of the reality of the world we live in. Unless God gives people ears to hear, they will not receive the truth. They will hold on to a narrative that is a lie. And we should not be surprised. That's exactly what's happening in Acts chapter 4. The religious leaders who should have known better, the religious leaders, it says in the first three verses, were uh, greatly disturbed at a different narrative. The different narrative was Jesus is Lord. and Jesus has been raised from the dead. And there's only salvation in Jesus. That's a different narrative. And they opposed that narrative and therefore they threw him in jail, just like they're throwing other pastors in jail today in other places. So the world opposes Christ by opposing the Christian narrative. There is a worldly lie of various kinds, and if we stand up and say, that's not true, that's not right, we shouldn't be surprised if what comes out is we don't care what you say, we don't care what your arguments are. We don't care that there's no body to be found. We don't believe in the resurrection of Jesus. That's a narrative that we refuse to even consider. That's the kind of culture that is becoming more and more true in our country, that you cannot have a different narrative. And if you do, they won't even listen to you. There's not even a place to sit down at the table and talk about it. To me, that's a great illustration of what the Bible says about the reality of the opposition of the world to what is truly right and what is truly gospel, what is truly true. And part of the reason for that is the desire to gain power and maintain power, especially for those in power. 
the rulers uh, in Acts chapter 4, it says in verses 5 through 7 that they were of high priestly descent. And they asked uh, John and Peter, by what power and what name have you done this? And so their concern is about, about the power. Who gave you the right? Who put you in a place of authority? Don't you know you're supposed to be submitting to us? You're not supposed to be saying things that we don't want you to say. You're not supposed to be doing things that we don't want you to do. The religious leaders were the, the rulers in uh, Israel. Now, they had to uh, submit to the Roman rulers and to Herod because Herod was appointed by the, the Roman rulers, but they were the ones who functioned on a daily basis among the Jewish people. And they actually wanted to preserve their place, so they didn't want to offend the Roman um, authorities. And so they desired to presume, preserve their power. It's interesting to me, I've used the illustration before about um, if you've watched The Lord of the Rings or read the story of The Lord of the Rings, you've got one character, Bilbo, and one character, Frodo. Bilbo's older, and he's trying to equip Frodo, who's on this journey. And so he gives Frodo his sword, and he gives him his mithril shirt. And as Frodo's about to take off his shirt to try on the mithril shirt, um, Bilbo sees the ring of power that is called hanging around his neck. And it's that scene in The Lord of the Rings, if you've seen the movie, where all of a sudden Bilbo, who is very friendly and helpful toward um, Frodo, automatically becomes a devil. You know, the picture is, uh, is him of getting angry and has a scary look on his face all of a sudden because he wants the ring of power. And then he goes back and he's ashamed at what came out. What is, what is being portrayed there? It's portraying the fact that whereas we see a world that seemingly is okay with God and okay with Christ, we just celebrate Christmas, don't we? We like the baby Jesus, don't we? Well, there are times when we see the true nature of our sin. The true nature of our sin is that we hate God. We hate Christ. We oppose him. That may not be seen all the time, but that is the nature of sin. It's it's in rebellion against God and against Christ, and it comes out at different times. It comes out at different seasons and different countries and different ways. It's a hellish response. And that's what we see happening in Acts chapter 4, is that... You've got John and Peter healing a man and they're preaching the gospel and there's a hellish response. Their initial response is to warn. Later on, they'll start killing. If they can't talk you into changing, they will force you to change or at least try to force you to change. That's the way it works. Anytime tyranny is involved, they will try to persuade you, but if you will not be persuaded, They will use force. And that's what we see playing out in the book of Acts as well. We see the true nature of these religious leaders coming out uh, gradually, and it begins to happen in Acts chapter 4. And so what they do is initially is they seek to silence the misinformation, right? The gospel is misinformation. As far as they're concerned, Jesus wasn't raised from the dead. As far as they're concerned, you can't be saved through Jesus. As far as they're concerned, they did nothing wrong in crucifying Jesus. But they are saying, you know what? That's misinformation for you to say that. And so it says in verses 13 through 18 that they ask the question, what shall we do with these men? 
for the fact that a noteworthy miracle has taken place. We cannot deny it. That's what's so interesting. Uh, going back to the interview with Ali Beth Stuckey and that professor, that's exactly what I'm referring to, that he would say, no matter what I would argue for my uh, position, no matter how good my arguments might be, no matter what evidence I would have uh, to support my argument, there was no place to hear it. So no matter what the, the disciples could say, and no matter, what ev- no matter what evidence that they could provide to say, Jesus rose from the dead. We've seen him. We know he is the only way of salvation. There was no place to hear it. God could heal a man who was lame for over 40 years, and they would still say, how are, how are we going to uh, silence this misinformation? How, how are we going to uh, keep this narrative from spreading? And so they decided, let us warn them to speak no longer to any man in this name. So they commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. And they threatened them that things are going to get worse if you guys don't fall in line. If you keep talking this way, uh, it will cost you. That's what it means to threaten someone. Things will get worse. And so the world opposes Christ because it desires to preserve its power and it claims the gospel is criminal misinformation. Now, an example of that uh, beginning to rise up is in Canada. Again, Canada's a little further along than we are in certain ways in terms of what I'm talking about. But in Canada, there was a law passed in December of uh, last year now. Um, It was a conversion therapy ban, which means it's illegal, criminal, have five years in jail if you counsel someone in a way that's meant to help them leave an LGBTQ plus lifestyle. So whether you're a professional counselor and or whether you're a pastor, you cannot counsel people to do what the Bible says, which is to repent of homosexuality or other kinds of lifestyles like that. And um, again, I heard someone else talking about that, a pastor in Canada talking about that. And he said, looking at uh, how it's crafted, the bill that's crafted, it's, it's very wide open. And he would say it's by, wide open by design so that it, it can include all kinds of things, including preaching from the pulpit. And he said, this bill effectively criminalizes the Christian faith and the call to conversion. You can't call people to follow Christ because that means giving up your LGBTQ lifestyle. You can't tell them to do that. And so what I'm saying is that is criminalizing Christianity, ultimately. It's a step in that direction. And that was, that's what the Canadian pastor is saying. If you understand the spirit of what this bill says and how broad it is, it could easily be applied in that way. And if they're already arresting pastors for just having church, uh, why wouldn't they arrest pastors for actually preaching against uh, homosexuality and other things the Bible condemns? Well, the good news in all this is that what we see um, in the latter part of the uh, chapter, verses 23 through 28, is that even though we should expect the opposition of the world We should also expect God to fulfill his good promises and to keep his 
good purposes. Um, what I mean by that is it says in verse 26, they quote from the Old Testament, um, where it says the rulers were gathered together against the Lord, and they apply that to their situation. They say, don't, don't you, uh, Lord, we know that uh, with Pontius Pilate and with Herod, the rulers were gathered against the Lord, and now they're applying it to their own situation where now they're opposing us as well. But the verse 28 says that even though all this is happening, God uh, is going to do whatever his hand and his purpose predestined to occur. So, so you see what I'm saying there? They're making the connection between we knew that opposition was going to come because you said it was going to come. This Old Testament passage said that it's the nature of ungodly power, ungodly rulers to oppose Christ and his church. And sometimes it flares up and sometimes it doesn't, but that is going to happen at different times and different ways. And yet, no matter when it happens, no matter to what degree it happens, it's all a part of God's purpose to fulfill what he's chosen to do in this world. And so... Even though we should oppose anything that says you cannot preach the gospel, which is what Peter said, we should not think that God's not in charge or that God isn't fulfilling his good purposes. And that's why the Bible says rejoice always, even when you're like a sheep in the midst of wolves. Be a rejoicing sheep in the midst of wolves. Uh, God is working out his good purposes. He's keeping his good promises. And so the reality of the opposition of the world is not meant to make us afraid. It's meant to help us to see the reality of the world we live in and ask the question, okay, what do I do? How do I love in light of the reality of the way things really are? And that's where we get to... um, see what he tells about the importance of speaking. Just one more word about this uh, opposition, though. It's interesting. There's a video out called Is Government the New God? It's by an outfit called Academy of Ideas. And they talk about the fact that among the totalitarian state, uh, as you look at it historically, it's like a religion, very much like a religion. And... Um, there are those who are the chosen and the pious and those who are sinners and heretics in light of the totalitarian state. And there's the idea that those who are in a government that seeks to control, they see the world like a garden, that they are called, they're anointed to make into the Garden of Eden, to make it better. And that's their job, is to make it better according to their definition of better. And they see people who are not pious, not believing their narrative, as sinners who are weeds in the garden that need to be eliminated. It's very helpful to understand. What was the perspective of the rulers in Jerusalem? That the followers of Christ were weeds in the garden that had to be dealt with, even with with force if necessary. Those weeds had to be um, eliminated or made ineffective one way or the other. They were not to spread. 
they were to be taken care of. And we have to realize that because that is the nature of man. And if God doesn't give grace for that to be held in check, then it will grow. More and more will Christians be seen as weeds that need to be eliminated. That's what happens in the book of Acts. We should not be surprised at that. We should not be afraid of that. But the question is, what do we do? And we're to follow the example that we see in Acts 4, which brings us to point number two, the duty to speak. Uh, in our day and time, we don't talk as much about the issue of duty. You know, do you, do you think much about that? What, what is my duty today? Um, in years past, Christians always talked about the issue of duty. Duty simply means, what does God call me to do? Well, what does God say that I'm supposed to do? That's the idea of duty. And that's what we see reflected in verses 19 and 20. When Peter and John answer the religious leaders and they say, whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge, for we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. So what does Peter say? Peter and John say in in response to, don't talk about Jesus anymore. They say, we have to do what's right. And God tells us what is right. And therefore, you tell us, because you're supposed to be followers of God too, you tell us what is right to do, to obey you or to obey God. And so he's making it very, very clear that they are going to continue speaking about Jesus because God has told them to. Jesus told them to. You are to be my witnesses from here to the end of the earth. They knew it was what Christ wanted them to do. Plus, why wouldn't you want to continue speaking about Jesus if you found in Jesus everything that you need and everything you could ever want in a God and a Savior? And you love people. Why would you stop speaking about him if you love the people around you that don't know him and if you know that he is the answer to their guilt problem? He is the answer to their, their pursuit of good problem. He is the answer to how they're supposed to live their life in a way that truly brings joy and peace and satisfaction. And so we see that they say, first of all, it's the right thing to do. It's, it's the loving thing to do. And then the other part of it is, if you notice, notice in verse 4, it says, many of those who heard, had heard the message believed, speaking of the message in chapter 3 that Peter preached, which just reminds us that um, God uses his people speaking the truth to raise people from the dead. Until a person is saved, they are dead to God. They're dead to the truth. Uh, They see things in light of the narrative that is a lie about life. But as believers speak the truth in humility and in love, not beating them over the head with their Bible, but but saying, this is what the Bible says, and, and this is what we've seen and heard in our own lives. So we speak that humbly and lovingly. God raises people from the dead. And therefore, Peter could say, it's just not right for us not to speak. It is not right. Um, there's it's a very simple illustration of this that I've maybe mentioned before. I can't remember but there was this young man in Florida who came to Christ, but 
he had some real um, learning disabilities. Uh, actually, he wasn't able to learn how to read. Uh, he had a speech impediment, so he slurred his speech when he talked. Uh, he walked with a limp, and he tended to be, to be a, an outcast. But he became a Christian, and he embraced the idea that it was his duty to love people with the truth of the gospel. And so he obviously thought and prayed, how can I do that based on where I am? I can't even read. I can't read the Bible to somebody, and I can't speak well. So how am I to embrace my duty as a Christian to love people with the truth? And what he did was he got a bunch of tracts, and he would go to people that he cared about, and he would say, I can't read. Would you read this to me? And they read it to him. And according to the testimony that I read, in one year, uh, 40 people came to Christ. Which is just an illustration of the fact that we all have weaknesses. Not, not everyone's a great speaker. Not everyone is outgoing. Uh, many of us are introverts. Many of us feel inadequate. Uh, the religious leaders looked at uh, Peter and John and said, these are untrained and uneducated men. Well, we all probably feel that way to one degree or another. We're untrained and uneducated. How can we be effective witnesses for Christ? It's by recognizing that it's up to the Holy Spirit to raise people from the dead. He just uses imperfect, weak vessels like you and me who figure out a way, by God's grace, we pray, Lord, how do I engage my family members? How do I engage my friends? How do I engage my neighbors? How do I engage my coworkers in a way that's humble and, and loving and kind and yet prevents the truth to them, uh, presents the truth to them, and, um, and just pray that God would use that truth. And just like in this situation, um, it's what we see reflected in the Bible when it talks about sowing the seed of God's word. God is the one who has to prepare the soil. Some soil is, is hard. And people are just going to reject what you say right off the bat. Other people have um, rocky hearts that will receive it, but they don't last. Others have thorny ground that will receive it to some degree, but they're too caught up in the things of this world and it doesn't bear any fruit. But then God prepares those who have good soil and it's the seed of the word of God that results in there being fruit that lasts. And so we pray that God would prepare people's hearts. We pray that God would cause it to bear good fruit and we seek to, to spread the word. Obviously, prayer is crucial. Personal relationships are important. Uh, serving people, just like they serve the, the lame man, as well as preach the gospel, and using public venues. This is a public venue. Uh, Facebook is a public venue. There's all kind of public ways to share the truth in our lives, and, and we do that. And so I need this encouragement as much as anybody. Um, we, we need to embrace this year the duty to speak the truth in love to those in our lives. Even though we might feel just like that um, young man who said, I don't speak well, I can't even read, um, how can God use me? We may feel just like that, 
But as we seek to do what God calls us to do, what the Lord Jesus has called us to do, um, more and more, seek to grow in that this year, um, we may be truly amazed at what God does in the hearts of people because it is truly what God does, not what we do. And the motivation is the requirement of love. We are to speak of Christ to unbelievers out of love. Um, Now, sometimes, like in our day and time, the definition of love means I will not make somebody uncomfortable. Uh, People need their safe zones, right? People talk about safe zones, which means don't say anything that might trigger me. Don't say anything that might upset me. Well, the problem is the gospel does upset people. The gospel does bother sinners. Usually, that happens before someone comes to Christ. They're offended by the gospel before they receive the gospel. And so if we're waiting until a person won't be offended, then we won't love them with the gospel. And so it means the definition of love that we have to realize is one that includes saying things that people may not want to hear. And we need to embrace that. We need to embrace the fact that um, that's exactly what we might need to do in order to love a certain person. That's why um, in verses 8 through 12, Peter um, says, um, are, are, basically, are we on trial for doing a good thing? Are, are we on trial for loving this flame man? Uh, more and more, uh, people are being put on trial, so to speak, around the world for doing what's right, for loving people, by telling them that they can be Uh, rescued from a lifestyle of sin, whether it's homosexuality or something else. More and more, uh, people are being put on trial for a benefit done to a sick man or a sinful man. And then he goes on to say, but I want you to know that this man has been healed physically by Jesus, and you can be healed spiritually by Jesus. That's the implication there, that this physical healing is just a picture of the spiritual healing that you can have. That man could not have healed himself physically. You can't heal yourself spiritually, but God has provided an able and willing Savior. So he says in verse 10, Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, It goes on from there in verse 12 and says, There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Uh, That is not a taunt. That is not a, na-na-na-na-na-na, we've got a Savior and you don't. He's named Jesus and we're right with him and you're not. It's not a taunt. That's an invitation. That is the truth being spoken that they might be set free by the truth. They didn't have to say anything to those religious leaders if they did not care about them. Oftentimes, uh, we show our indifference and even hatred to people by refusing to speak. It is speaking in love that shows love. And that's exactly what Peter and John are doing here. They're They're not attacking those who are attacking them. They're loving them by telling them the truth. You crucified Jesus, but God raised him from the dead. And there is salvation in no one else. And he says, by which we must be saved. Who's the we? 
It's everybody they're talking to, everybody in that room. We must be saved. He is our only, only hope. And so God loved the the unbelievers in this story by by healing this lame man. He got their attention. And then he preached the gospel to them through Peter and John. God was loving those religious leaders and he was loving the people of Israel even though they had crucified his son. And he calls us to love the people around us too with the gospel as well. And yet, initially it's going to sound like a warning, right? I'm sure it probably sounded like a warning to these religious leaders. What are you saying? Are you threatening us? It probably came across as a threat. There's a story that I um, recalled in, in light of this where uh, these commandos, these um, Israeli commandos rescued uh, these Jewish people who had been taken uh, hostage in Uganda. They'd been taken hostage and flown to Uganda. And in this story, the uh, Jewish commandos decided that they were going to rush into this airport where these hostages were, and they were going to speak in Hebrew. They were going to say in Hebrew, get down, crawl. They're going to say that because they knew all the Jewish hostages would understand them, but their captors would not. And so that's exactly what they did. This happened back in 1976. They rush into the airport. They holler, uh, get down, crawl in Hebrew, and the Jewish people hit the floor. And everybody left standing are the hostages, and they shoot them and kill them and rescue the hostages. But there were... Um, a couple Jewish hostages that did not obey the command and they got shot even though they were not intended to be shot. And there was one young man, a Jewish young man who for some unknown reason was already down and stood up and he got shot. But basically uh, they warned the people that they might be rescued. Those who followed the command were rescued. Those who didn't received the consequence that was intended for the enemy. The Bible says that hell was prepared for the devil and his angels. And yet, other people go there too, right? But it says it was prepared for the devil and his angels. For those who refused the offer of mercy from God received the consequence that, in a sense, wasn't intended for them. In a sense. If you understand what I'm saying. And so when we proclaim the gospel, there is a sense in which we're warning people, but we're warning them because we love them. And that warning often comes across as a threat. And yet it's really meant to help them to see where they are and their need for Christ. And so sort of like if you read the book of uh, Revelation, you'll see the, the trumpet judgments. What is a trumpet meant to do? It's meant to wake people up and warn them. If you read about the trumpet judgments in Revelation, if you read very carefully, it says that when these judgments are given, people refuse to repent. They refuse to receive the warning of the trumpet. And that's what the gospel is. It it warns us of a judgment to come, but it proclaims mercy in Jesus. And so... What we're doing is we're loving people by calling them to repent and calling them to, to rest in Jesus as the Savior that they need. 
Well, very quickly, let me get to the last point, which is the request for boldness. God wants us, calls us, commands us to speak on his behalf that people might be reconciled to him out of love. Because God says, love your neighbor as yourself. Uh, wouldn't you want someone to mourn you if, they, if you were on your way uh, to judgment? Of course we would. And yet, because of the opposition of the world, we can be paralyzed by fear. We can be paralyzed by what it might cost us to do that. What if, it, what if I lose my job by somehow identifying with Christ? What if I make somebody upset and they punch me in the face? What if I actually witness to someone who's in the LGBTQ community and actually in, in telling them what it actually means, the implications of being a Christian, it, that it means uh, giving up that lifestyle, uh, could I be arrested for that? Um, what might the cost be? You might remember this picture. It's from uh, 1989. Uh, it's the day after a protest in Tiananmen Square in China. And um, the day before, hundreds of people had been shot for protesting um, various things that were going on in their country and various things that their government was doing. And on this day, if you notice, that man is actually, it appears to be carrying shopping bags. And so there's this uh, train of tanks coming down the street. And what appears to have happened is this man had gone shopping, and who knows? I mean, they've speculated on whether or not one of his loved ones was shot the day before in the protest or what had happened. But for whatever reason, he took his shopping bags and stepped in front of this line of tanks that were coming down this um, roadway. And he would not let them pass until eventually somebody grabbed him and moved him out of the way. But apparently, he was willing to stop and even be crushed by those tanks to protest what was happening in his country. And the reality is, uh, the Bible tells us that we know love by this, that he, Jesus, laid down his life for us. It's easy to love in the sense of, I'm going to give you a Christmas present. The question is whether or not I'm going to be willing to lay down my life for you. That's Christian love. Am I willing to lose something? Willing to lose my relationship? Am I willing to lose my reputation? Am I willing to lose my income? Am I willing to lose my life? That's what it means to love with the love of Christ. Um, and obviously this man, for whatever reason, took a bold stand. In Acts chapter 4, John and Peter are taking a bold stand. They knew it could cost them their lives. And eventually... Uh, Christians began to be put to death because of that testimony. And so when you stand in a position where you could be crushed by the opposition, what do we need to keep in mind? We have a duty to speak, and that duty is the duty of love. And yet there are two errors, and Calvin talks about this in light of this chapter. He says, uh, on the one hand, one ditch is not speaking at all. The other ditch is speaking basically with pride and contentiousness and with anger. And he says, we need to speak the truth in love. 
we, he says, um, we must be aware of two faults on this behalf, that we seem not to flatter by keeping silence or winking, and that we be not puffed up with wantonness or immoderate heat, as men's minds do oftentimes break out more than they ought in contention. Let us chide freely, yet without all heat of railing. So what he means is let us speak, let us speak the truth in love, let us make sure we speak out of love. Let us make sure that our, we love the people we're talking to, even if they might end up crushing us, running over us with a tank, throwing us in jail, or bringing other consequences in our lives. And so ultimately, for myself and for us as a church, not knowing what the future holds, but wanting to be prepared for what the future holds, I would encourage you this year to pray for courage. Pray for boldness, because that's exactly what they do in this chapter. They, they know that they've been threatened. And what do they do? They go and pray for boldness. And it says the Holy Spirit gave them boldness. Don't think that you can stand up to whatever pressure you're under. You can't. If you don't have God's grace, you will fold. I will fold. None of us can stand up to the pressure that the devil and the world and the flesh exerts on us, none of us. And yet God is ready and willing to give us the grace we need to stand up. And that's why we are to pray for boldness. Even Paul could say, pray for us, that we might be bold in speaking the gospel. So expect the opposition of the world. We're to embrace our duty to speak the good news. We're to be moved by the love of God. God has loved us. We want to be a channel of that love to others. And we're to pray for wisdom and boldness, to know how to do that in our relationships. Um, It's not always easy. It's not always one size fits all. Uh, Loving people with the gospel may look different. But let's pray for courage to love with our words that God might raise people from the spiritually dead. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for the example and the encouragement of your word and what we see in Acts chapter 4. Father, we live in dark times, and yet you call us to love by showing courage and speaking the truth. And we pray for greater grace to do that. I pray for greater grace for myself. pray for greater grace for all of us, that this year that we might grow in that, that we might do that wisely and well, in our relationships, and that you lead us and help us, that you would grant to us boldness, courage, wisdom, and grace, that those around us might, by your work, come to know Christ, and that your name might be exalted through our lives more and more. Please prepare us now for the Lord's Supper. Help us to worship you as we receive and rejoice in what you've done for us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.